Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Lord, we thank you even now for the supernatural encounter we've just had because the Word of God has been read. We thank you, Lord, that we have received the gift of faith through salvation in Jesus to believe the Word of God. Now, Lord, unfold all that you would do in us supernaturally to overcome our sin nature. We ask for power from the Lord. Give us the power to receive the blessing of those who have poverty in spirit, that ours may be the kingdom of God. Come, Holy Spirit, come and teach us. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or lay aside by thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. All right, you all can be seated. Well, this has been incredibly sweet. Already, I know for Catherine and me, one of the high points of the 2020-2021 ministry year. <laughs> wow, have we loved this. I know you all are a few years along already, but I've had a chance to watch churches start and watch churches mature and watch churches grow. These are very sweet moments. You'll feel so blessed that God opened the door for you to be here this weekend. You'll remember this time in a few years. And it's moments like this that actually build a church. This is how you build a church. This retreat, that Sunday service, that house group, that conversation, that prayer time, that's how you build a church. You all are building a church. Is there anything greater? On this earth, is there anything greater than being a part of seeing the church of Jesus Christ grow? Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. All right. We're going to work in our Bibles in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. That was the passage read by Deacon Chad. I'm glad I ordained him. That was awesome. <laughs> that was good. That was a good decision. I gotta stay right here. I can't move around, Scott. This is, this is good discipline for me. All right, this is good. 
This is good. Our, 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 our camera folk at Res only wish that they could keep me in one place like this. They've been really good. Paul Vermeesh is like the speedy camera guy. He moves that thing back and forth as I get moving for our, our live streams. So um, some of you are Wheaton graduates. Let me just say how glad we are in our diocese that many of you are not Wheaton gra graduates. We need you. We pray for you to come and help us, um, save us from ourselves. Um, but I am, I am a Wheaton alum, both undergraduate uh, in literature and theater, and then did a graduate degree in theology and Bible there. A tradition then, and a tradition I believe still now, um, and in the 80s, a major event on campus what was called class films. And the assignment was very simple. Every class was able to organize a team to create a class film, and there would be a competition. Uh, ours was in the winter between uh, each class's uh, piece of art, if you will. So my freshman year, I got asked to do a little cameo piece. It was actually um, an early piece of white rap called the Geology Jam. The video is still floating out there somewhere. Um, second year, I actually was part of the team that put together the um, entire film and uh, was very involved in it for our sophomore class film. And I thought this film was honestly going to be brilliant. I thought it would be kind of my breakthrough moment where I would move into the class of cool kids at Wheaton that I publicly scorned, but privately yearned to at least be able to turn down by being given an invitation in. I thought the film was an excellent piece of commentary on the current state of evangelicalism. I won't go into the details because this is a sermon about holy things. But I will say, I played Ken Elliott, the twisted twin, unknown hidden twin of Jim Elliott, who is a true missionary hero. I regret doing anything to tarnish the name of Jim Elliott, but I was a part of that. The film would be erudite, multi-layered, much to be considered. Indeed, we had to be the Hammersley House and one day show that film and talk about it as they do other great films by other great filmmakers. And I really did believe all of this. The night came, I thought carefully about which of my five herringbone jackets I would wear and was very positioned for an evening of adulation. Freshman class film went, and, you know, we, you know, we, you know, whatever, right? they're 18 year olds, they don't know what they're doing. And then the sophomore film came. The credits rolled, opening credits starring Stuart Ruck III. Well, you know. <laughs> Within five minutes of the film rolling, the hundreds of students that gathered in Pierce Chapel that night began to boo. And as if it would only be momentary, I thought, we'll get through this. They're just adjusting to the high level of art they're asking them to take in. <laughs> But the booing continued. The booing got so loud and was so vociferous, it built and it built and it built until 10 minutes in, the organizers of the event made a decision to stop the film. Like, just stop. And then as if nothing had happened, they started the junior class film. I was devastated. I don't think I've ever been more publicly ashamed in my life. I mean, there, on a projected screen for all of my peers to see was an illusion that I had utterly being shattered before their eyes. What I thought was brilliant, what I thought was powerful, what I thought was amazing 
I discovered, at least in my peers' opinions across the board, was angry, they thought, and cynical, and inappropriate, petty, and they booed him. I literally uh, became so sick from the experience, I had to be hospitalized. I was shocked. But I had an illusion completely broken. And in retrospect, it was an illusion that needed to be broken. And in retrospect, I actually think it was an act of God in my life. Whenever any of us as human beings encounter Jesus, when we come into time with Jesus, we can be assured there'll be a stabilizing element, there'll be a consoling element, but there will also be an illusion-shattering element to time with Jesus. Indeed, it's a life-transforming opportunity to have our illusions utterly and in a holy way debunked by the power and the person of Jesus. We need to see who we really are. Indeed, I had portrayed an element, part of who I really was, on a huge screen. We need that. We need that portrayed for us. I'm not the same publicly in the same format, but we need to make that clear to us. We need to make that explicit to us, just how much we have carried a deceit of our own remarkableness. We have a heroine in the gospel reading this morning. She's remarkable. She's not named. Early church thinkers connected her with Mary of Magdalene, and Mary of Magdalene is portrayed right after this passage. So it's possible that Luke had some knowledge that this was Mary of Magdalene. We don't know. She's not named. But our heroine, a person of degradation in ancient Near Eastern culture and Hebrew culture, a person of degradation, is a free person in this story. Our anti-hero, Simon the Pharisee, one of the most impressive and well-known figures within Jerusalem culture, he's named, that tells us he carries status, he's a Pharisee, he's known as one of those who combines both incredible intellectual prowess with leadership acumen, things that you don't often see together in one figure, which you saw in Pharisees like this man. Our anti-hero is not a free person, he's a fettered prisoner. So already, in hearing this historical account, we're brought to a kind of holy tension. She's the lowest, she's free. He's the highest, he's fettered. Our heroine lives in a kind of blessing, we see. It is the blessing that Jesus teaches on in Matthew chapter five. It's also given in Luke chapter six, just prior to Luke chapter seven. Blessed are the poor, as is transcribed in Luke, and more fully in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This historical account is a real life parable living out Jesus' teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. How do we live into that blessing? How can we have a life in which we live the blessing of living in the kingdom of God by accepting the discipline and the shattering of the illusion that must occur that we might be poor in spirit? That's how we get time with Jesus. 
You want time with Jesus. You crave his presence. You crave his person. You crave his consolation. Receive the blessing of being poor in spirit. Indeed, to be poor in spirit is to live by faith. And Jesus commends her at the end. And to live by poor in spirit is to love much. Let's confront our illusions. Verses 39 to 47 as we analyze the text some. Confront our illusions. Let's cry on the feet of Jesus. Verses 36 to 38 and 48 to 49. We read here that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. As many of you might know, it's a table culture. It's a carpet culture. I've had a chance to visit other parts of the world. There's still carpet cultures where the fees would be set almost like in a circular table setting. The head would be at the table and the feet would be out. So you actually would, you actually still in carpet culture sit or recline on carpet. So the Lord's feet would have been out um, and then the head toward the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Learned he was reclining at table in Simon's house. And she brought a flask of ointment. The first illusion that must be confronted for us who are already believers, and the illusion that Simon must confront as one who believed deeply in Yahweh, is the illusion that we are sinners who don't need to be saved. And did we see in Simon's behavior, he would have absolutely said he was a sinner. He had a strong biblical understanding of the reality of the sin nature. This was deeply a part of the Hebrew understanding of personhood as it related to our fallen nature. He would have absolutely said he was a sinner, and yet he acts like one who does not need to be saved. Look how he operates with Jesus. He's absolutely on speaking terms. He treats him as a peer. If even that, as the story unfolds, we see indeed he does not even treat him as a peer, but in a kind of classic passive-aggressive action, he makes very clear to Jesus, we're not even peers. I won't even treat you as I would a peer, washing your feet, caring for your different needs, but I will passively, aggressively invite you into my home. And you make very clear where you stand in relationship to me. I am Simon the Pharisee. Let's be clear. Not everywhere we're passive aggressive is because we're threatened. I am not Simon who needs to be saved. He is on speaking terms with Jesus, but he is not, if you will, on shrinking terms with Jesus. The woman shrinks down. She is now in the presence of him who either has already had a saving ministry to her. We don't know exactly the details of what happened prior to the story or in that moment is having a saving relationship with her. But she has heard of the rabbi from Nazareth. She has heard of his love for people like her. And she breaks through the door of that culture. Behold, a woman appears and she shrinks down with Jesus. Is this not so true about us? As believers, we don't reject Jesus. We say we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but we also don't wipe his feet with the tears from our eyes. We don't shrink down in the presence of him who has rescued us from utter devastation. We treat our friends with greater consideration, greater tenderness, greater affection than we often treat Jesus himself. 
We see our sin, if we're really honest, more as a shortcoming, a problem. We need a treatment, we might say. And in doing so, we relate to our sin nature more like we might an undisciplined puppy who needs to be handled and trained rather than what our sin really is, which is a feral pit bull that could bite you in the face. We have a wonderful new Anglican Catechism. A catechism is simply, um, in the tradition of the church, a, a book that teaches you about the faith. And it often operates with a question, and then it gives an answer. And I highly commend Anglican Catechism to you. It's one of the great legacies of Dr. Packer, who now is with the Lord. J.I. Packer. Our catechism asks this question, how does sin affect you? And the catechism answers this way, quote, Sin alienates me from God. Well, we would expect that. My neighbor, yes. God's good creation. Well, that's interesting, actually, and important. And myself. Sin alienates me from myself. Sin creates an illusory life, right? The Apostle John says, sin deceives us. We deceive ourselves. We think that we have no sin, which again, John's not saying people say, I'm never a sinner. He's saying, I don't think I need to be saved from my sins, what John is saying in 1 John. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're alienated from who we actually are. And we think that in some way we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're actually better than we are, or we're able to treat our sin than we are, or we're able to handle it therapeutically than we are, which is not to, by the way, in any way dismiss the need for proper Christian therapy, but they handle it therapeutically, when actually we're under so much illusion that we are to continue the catechism. Apart from Christ, I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. Of course she shrinks down, right? Of course she goes to his feet. She's walked in the way of death. Is this the one person who has come into my world, into my town, into my city? He's here right now. How can I not help but pour alabaster upon his feet? How can I help but not wash my feet with the tears from my eyes and the hair from my head? This is why the divines who put together the ministry of the prayer book understood how important it was that from Psalm 70, every morning and morning prayer, we pray, oh God, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, make haste to help us. It's not wrong that we say that in, in, in common voice as we pray. That's good. But do you understand the charged emotion and charged spiritual urgency behind those words? That our leaders who have gone ahead of us said, you should say this every morning. That's how poor you are. Oh God, make speed to save us. If we're being saved from actually the illusion that we don't need to be saved, we find that we must also, as Simon the Pharisee, be saved from our sense of superiority. Oh, his well-developed, handsome superiority. I've invited Jesus into my house. Other Pharisees didn't do that. Can you see it? He's brilliant. And then being so brilliant, terrifying. We have to live like Simon in a kind of superiority over Jesus. Now, again, you say, oh my word, no, 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 no. You're, you're misreading me here. 
Stuart, I, I would never be superior over Jesus. You're never superior over his words. I mean, these are his words. You're never superior over any part of what he has said. Any section in here where you've gone, oh, that, well, I mean, not that, not that part of the Bible. Have you ever put yourself over some teaching from the scriptures? Use some intellectual dynamic or workaround? To say, not that part. Here's when I became an inheritance, an errant, and you know what I'm saying. Here, here, here's why I bought the inerrancy of scripture, which isn't a slip in an interesting term. I was in a, in a class with a brilliant New Testament uh, professor and theologian, and he said, I want you guys to know I actually believe the inerrancy of scripture. And he used the word, which back in the 90s was a word you didn't use if you wanted to seem smart. Like, oh, Chicago Declaration of Inerrancy, 1975, whatever. Oof, oof, that's not good. Because here's why I'm an inerrancy, why I hold inerrancy. That I wouldn't dare put myself over any part of the Bible to say that that part's in error. He said, that scares me. I thought, wow, if Dr. Phillips is scared by that, I think I'm scared by that. He was the opposite of putting himself in superiority. Or perhaps we put ourselves in superiority over his body. Maybe it's better, you're better with his words, it's his body that you often feel superior over. In other words, his church. Now let me be clear. There's a difference here between the scriptures and the church insofar as the church is made up of people with sinful nature, which is not to say that you've not been hurt by people in the church in a legitimate way. That I'm not saying, I want to be clear. But there is a way in which, when the church may not be in sin, the church is in incompetency. The church is in bad websites. The church is in making decisions that you don't like about how they handle COVID. In those moments, when the church is, and the people of the church aren't sinning, it's making decisions contrary to what you would like or what you would prefer. Have you not ever put yourself in a superior position over her? Or even more to the point, and this is not going to give the dynamic here at Christ Church. I think you all are quite submitted to your leader, and I thank God for that. But if you put yourself in superiority over her leaders, not when they're in sin, not when they're in error, clearly, according to the scriptures, but just as they're leading, I think we find that we actually do take Simon's position of superiority often over Jesus. I think we find we're actually quite passive-aggressive with the scriptures and the church. Come into my house, but I won't serve you. And then we take offense at the word, we're embarrassed by the church. And indeed, we might even be embarrassed by those who aren't shrinking terms with Jesus. We get embarrassed by those who exhibit in some kind of emotional fashion that in light of this teaching is utterly appropriate, but which our culture might deem inappropriate. We're embarrassed for them, and we're embarrassed to be they're part of our church community. If that happens in our heart, we rejoice that Jesus has come to forgive our sins. We also confront the illusion of our solo strength. Look at the sinful woman, the woman who loves much, in verse 38. She stands behind him at his feet, weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. 
And she wipes it with the hair of her head. And then she kisses his feet. And would you love to be able to actually kiss the feet of Jesus? What a blessed woman. She had Jesus right there and she knew. I can kiss his feet. He's right here. I don't think I would have been poured up in spirit to have gone through that door. I don't think I would have had the courage in front of the people that I wanted most to impress, the intellectual leadership of the day. I don't think I would have been strong enough or courageous enough to kiss his feet. Simon missed that opportunity to kiss the feet of Jesus. I think I might have too. But she didn't. Why? What had happened for her that hasn't happened yet for me? Well, she confronted the illusion of her need to be saved. I think she's also confronted the illusion of her own solo strength. This is a recognition that poverty of spirit is both an awareness of our sin and a coming free from that illusion. But poverty of spirit also involves not necessarily a sinful dynamic, but a situation in which we realize by circumstances that have come against us, by just life circumstances like a pandemic, we have a poverty in spirit that can never be overcome by our own strength itself. Which is to say, not all poverty of spirit is generated by your sinful nature. Your poverty of spirit is also generated by your human nature, by your creaturely nature. That indeed, human beings were created with a poverty of spirits originally in the garden, that they might depend upon the living God, that they might be creatures to his great creator reality. But we indeed, and it comes sin, often fight against that reality of our solo poverty and indeed live an illusion of our solo strength. We see this in the widow of Nain. It's not that she sinned by becoming a widow. We have no hint of that. The centurion servant didn't sin by becoming so ill that we know of. Indeed, they're in a poor place. They're in an, ex an outside, external reality that's pushed them toward an incredible poverty spirit. This is the kind of poverty spirit that comes with the diagnosis on the phone call with your doctor. That you didn't, you didn't do anything to bring that diagnosis about. It happened. This is the poverty that comes from a crisis that befalls somebody that you love deeply and closely. It comes from a close relationship that's become estranged beyond your control and maybe even outside of what you've been able to do or serve. This is the poverty of spirit that happens for some of us in leadership who just find ourselves in swirling, whirling, insane moments. They're the combination of the demonic and sinful nature and the world. And we can't do anything to control them or change them. That's a different kind of poverty of spirit, but one that is so profound and so power. Indeed, what we learn to do in the Christian life, what we learn to do as a sinful woman, is we carry our poverties. We name our poverties. We actually address them and articulate them and journal about them. We need to become familiar with our poverties. What is it in our own lives, both our sin nature, but beyond that, that we carry, that we're not good at? What are the things that humiliate you? What are you humiliated by? By your own limitations. Everything in you will want to not think about that or even have an illusion that you're actually better at that than you are, but you're not good at it. So carry it as a poverty. We don't know the details of, our, of the sinful woman. First of all, we know that she was a sinner because Jesus needed to forgive her sins, which were many. 
So she needed the forgiveness of sins. But we do know that for many women that ended up in prostitution, not all, they were sold as young teenage girls by their families because the families were destitute. We know that. We, it still happens in the world. So perhaps that happened to her. That wasn't her fault. If that feeling was what happened. We also know that for a woman to earn was almost impossible in ancient years. You can hardly imagine how impossible it would have been had she not had a father or an uncle or a husband. So again, it is possible that while she entered into a sinful way of earning that needed to be forgiven, the forces behind it were beyond her control. So what do we do with all of this? These poverties. I would say first, ask to be personally confronted by Jesus. Jesus, would you confront me? Simon, I have something to say to you. You can hear it like this. Simon, I have something to say to you. I love you so much. She loves more. But I love you. I have something to say to you. Stuart, I have something to say to you. Ask when a person confronts you. Ask when a person confronts you through his word so that you come into conviction from something in the scriptures that just ministers right to your heart. Oof. I mean, it's so clean and clear when the word convicts me. I'm like, oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, just a week and a half ago, I was so excited about something that's, that's happening in our ministry. Catherine's my work primarily Catherine's, but I'm so excited about it. And it'd be a very convenient thing to talk a lot about it right now in public situations because it would position us very well um, with people that we like to be positioned with. And I made the I made the mistake of reading the Bible that morning. <laughs> right? And the Bible says, do not show your acts of charity before men, that they may be pleased with you. So that your father who sees in secret will bless you. <laughs> I went, oh no, I was totally convicted. Because I was planning a whole careful, subtle, but impressive communication <laughs> process whereby people would be impressed with me. I was right on it. I was right ready. And I read the Bible and I got convicted. Jesus personally confronted me. It could be that he'll send somebody to confront you. But somebody who loves you. Confrontation needs to come out of love. It must come out of love. Somebody who's safe, somebody who's trustworthy, who can come and confront you. Ask for that. Ask the Lord for that. Maybe circumstances that you'll just be in, you'll go, ooh, these circumstances are happening around me. This experience I'm having, I feel confronted by this. So why? So we can cry on the feet of Jesus. What do we see in the sinful womb? First we see, and you see this in verse 38, that she is so attached to Jesus that she should be properly detached from others. One of the great freedoms of being poor in spirit is we become so attached to the Lord Jesus, so attached to his affection, so attached to his teaching, so attached to his authority that we do not give others the authority that they should not have in our lives, which is not to say that there are not those who should have authority in our lives properly, employers and church leaders and civic authorities. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that way we can have proper attachments with them as well. And we actually can develop a kind of proper order of attachment in our lives. But so many things go so confusing and actually just into so much sin when we have disordered attachments 
that would rule our lives. One of the great ways of getting free, one of the great joys of poverty of spirit, is that your attachments get ordered. They get lined up properly. And so you first and foremost, you're attached to Jesus so much so that you want to kiss his feet. And you don't care what the great thought leaders think. You don't care. Is it you're free? I imagine myself in this story when I read it. And I imagine myself as a young Pharisee. And I mind myself working towards Simon noticing me. And only as he noticed me, he actually invites me to dinner with, with him. So he's going to invite me to dinner with a few other young Pharisees. And I'm going to get to be there with Simon. I've been thinking all night long, not to say too much because that would bother Simon. But if I just get one sentence in that's super intelligent and really clear and articulate, he may take notice of me and give me another opportunity later. So I'm going to build my opportunities by this invitation. He's inviting some rabbi from Nazareth. That'll be interesting to see kind of what that's like. Whatever. I'm there for Simon. I'm attached to Simon. And then this woman comes in and she interrupts the whole evening. And now she's taking up so much airspace, I'll never get my sentence in. That's what I'm thinking as she kisses the feet of Jesus. Because my attachments are so out of order. Amen? Amen. <laughs> oh, to be so attached to Jesus. Isn't Jesus so attached to the Father? I mean, he's utterly bonded in a profound union, unlike any union, and yet one that we're called to live into. He's so bonded to the Father. Why should he really like to people? He knows who to be attached to, the sinful woman. He cares deeply about her. And he knows how, and Father Scott's going to lead you into this in his preaching series, how some of those who challenge him, it's not worth going after. I don't need to impress Simon, the Pharisee. I need to confront him. Wow. How do you get there? When we cry the feet of Jesus, we view our poverty as a door and not a deficit. Behold, a woman of the city does what? She walks through a door. Behold, she walks through a door into Simon's house to be attached to Jesus. Her poverty is her door. It is not her deficit. I love this quote from um, Father Monty Williams, who I have not read widely enough to recommend uh, some of you guys are such readers and, and uh, kind of uh, collectors of information. That if I mention a, a thinker, you may Google them, which is fine, but I cannot fully endorse Father Monty Williams. I have read enough of his stuff. But this quote's great. Um, Instead of viewing our poverty as a horror and a burden, we may see it as a door that we need to walk through. Continuing on, he says, spiritual pilgrims follow the path of Christ here and now, concretely. Here's what he means. Not only with how we are, but who we are with. Your poverty will come out with who you are. Your poverty will come out with who you are with in the situations within ourselves, within our immediate communities, our families, and our friends. To realize this is to realize our poverty. The very things that you wish you could get out of, family dynamics, work dynamics, self-dynamics, are the very poverties that are your door into the kingdom of God itself. And isn't that amazing news? You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to get a new spouse. You don't have to get a new family. You have to rearrange your whole entire life situation so you can finally be free. You can be free within your life situation. As you embrace your poverty of spirit that is being communicated to you all day long, all the time, through your sin and your, and your own just poverty deficits that are there. Amen. That's how good Jesus is. He takes the very things of our life right now, the very challenges of our life, the very heartbreaks of our life, the very griefs of our life, and they become doors into the presence of God and poverty of spirit. I have been 
God started Lent with me in the summer, and I just finished Lent in April. And he started a personal Lent with me this summer. I have been in a Lenten season where by his grace, I have been had the opportunity to confront my sin nature and my own sort of life external poverty to the level I have never done so before in my life. And it has been extremely hard. And I've had some really helpful spiritual leadership and spiritual friends, God friends, to walk me in this process. But I'm stunned how much sin I still have after being a serious Christian for almost 30 years. Crazy. I was joking with Catherine and some others. I mean, I'm 53 years old and I'm still vain. That's pathetic. I mean, that really is pathetic. But it's true. I mentioned this at Res and a guy stopped me and said, oh, don't worry, I'm 68 and I'm still vain. <laughs> Had not been for COVID, we would have embraced. <laughs> and it looked at each other, you look pretty good, actually. <laughs> so what do you do with your poverty? Ask you just to forgive your sins. Indeed, those young Pharisees this is the one who says he forgives sins. That's right. That's what he does. Hallelujah. We need to be saved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.